Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform, Station of the Nation, coming at you live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I've got a great show for you this evening, and I'm so happy you joined. We're going to be talking with Adrian Hahn, who's a return guest to the show. Uh, He was previously on the show, uh, let's see, the date was November 30, 2020. So it was almost exactly two years ago that Adrian was on previously talking about his book, A New History of the Future and 100 Objects in which he spun out a bunch of possible future scenarios of what technology and tech companies and governments, what shape they may take in centuries to come. I thought it was a provocative and interesting book. We had a good conversation, which you can find in the archives at WFMU.org or at techtonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. Tonight, though, we're talking about his new book, which, as I say, is about gamification, which I will explain. The book is called You've Been Played, how corporations, governments, and schools use games to control us all. And when Adrian talks about games, and as we um, discuss games in this interview, we're, we're really drawing on um, video games, whether it's on a console like a, like a, a Nintendo Switch or a PlayStation, or, or if it's on a, a mobile device or a, on, a, on a PC or Mac, <clears throat> these video games have certain elements, design elements and interaction elements that gamers, and I I guess I would qualify, I've played video games for a long time, gamers will recognize when they see them outside of video games. And if you have not played video games, you might start recognizing some of these elements, even if you haven't played a lot of video games. Um, And these are the the kinds of things you might notice. Um, (coughs) Things like uh, points, badges, challenges, levels, and leaderboards that I'm reading from his book here. So if, if you're, as the subtitle says, if you are influenced, you know, working for a corporation, you're a citizen of a government, that's most of us, I think, or you're a student in a school, you might start seeing some of these elements popping up on the screen. Like you just, I don't know, you just completed some random task. You got a badge. And you might think, a badge for what? Why Why am I getting a badge? What does it mean? And why should I care? Well, if you've started noticing this stuff at work or at school or in government communications, get ready because it's going to be increasing. And this, this really is a fantastic book that talks about the history of gamification and what the agenda is of the corporations, governments, and schools in trying to uh, manipulate the... Uh, consumers and citizens and students into doing what these institutions want them to do, using these video game mechanics to manipulate them um, in, in products that are not video games and they are not fun, although they have this sort of infantilizing layer uh, to make it look as though it should be fun, but it's really not fun. Let's go ahead and get to this interview with uh, Adrian Hahn. We mostly talk about uh, the corporations part, not so much about the governments and schools, But given time at the end of the interview, um, I may be able to speak to uh, those two points a little bit uh, because Adrian covers them in in some depth in the book. Um, If you'd like to uh, join in the live listener conversation, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments. Here is my interview with Adrian Hahn here on Tectonic on WFMU. Adrian Hahn, welcome back to Tectonic. Great to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you back, Adrian. You were first on the show back in November of 2020, talking about your previous book, A New History of the Future in 100 Objects, which I liked a lot. And now you're back with a brand new book, which I have to say, Adrian, I think this is even better than your previous book. This is really an excellent book. It's called... You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. It's published by Basic Books, and it's a great read. 
this book is all about something called gamification. Why don't you give us your definition of gamification? Some people may know it by the streaks and achievements and leaderboards that they see everywhere, but how would you describe gamification, Adrian? Yeah, my definition is pretty expansive. It's basically the use of ideas from game design, which obviously includes things like points and badges and leaderboards and and missions, uh, but also other things uh, for non-game purposes. So education, journalism, politics, that sort of thing. So pretty, pretty expansive. Yeah, and this book talks about gamification in games and where it came from, but it goes well beyond that, talking about gamification in the workplace and in the onslaught of fake news and conspiracy theories that seem to be proliferating, especially in the U.S. right now. And you finish by talking about the world as game. And overall, I think what you're doing is you're trying to give us a full-fledged sense of how we can and should be relating to games and game design elements in our lives. You're uniquely positioned to write this book, Adrian. (laughs) In fact, I would say you're uniquely positioned as a game designer and you're someone who's somewhat of an unlikely person to write this book, given that the book is often critical of the appearance of game design elements in the world. Can you say a little bit about your background as an accomplished game designer yourself? Yeah, well, I I came to game design through an unusual route. I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Back then, if you wanted to get into video game design, as it seemed to me, there were basically three routes. You could either become a games programmer, and uh, I didn't think I was good enough at math to to do that, or you could become an artist, and I definitely wasn't good enough at art, or you could work your way up as a tester, and that just seemed like it would t- just take forever. So I actually went to university and I studied experimental psychology and neuroscience, which have, in my opinion, very little to do with game design, although a lot of people will, will disagree. More recently in your career, you have a game called Zombies Run, which yeah. is a mobile game that has done very well. Can you say something about Zombies Run? Yeah, so we came up with the idea for Zombies Run back in 2011. And it was basically, you know, we we're trying to figure out a way of making running more fun. Uh, I was I was starting to run uh, back then, and I was kind of surprised that there weren't any more apps or games that, that tried to make it uh, more interesting. And so we had this idea of creating an audio adventure uh, for smartphones linked to GPS tracking. And that was very specific because... You know, when you're running, you can't look at your phone. Uh, you can only really listen to things uh, with your headphones. It's pretty unsafe to be looking down all the time. And we set it in a zombie apocalypse because uh, people people know how zombies work. You know, we don't have to do a lot of teaching there. And uh, you can't reason with them or um, you can't really shoot them all classically because uh, there's just always more zombies. So you have to run away. So that is what I've been working on really for the last uh, 10, 11 years now. You devote a chapter of You've Been Played to talk about the design of Zombies Run because it does, as a, as a mobile game, it obviously makes use of game design elements. So there is some level of gamification, I guess, uh, that you've drawn on in the game. But you write a lot about the popular elements of gamification that you declined to put in. Hmm. What are some of the things that you said no to in designing Zombies Run? Well, a pretty common thing in health and fitness apps, um, but actually, honestly, in, in the you know most apps these days, is the idea of streaks. That's basically you get a reward if you complete an activity uh, in, you know, Uh, 10 days in a row or 30 days in a row or 100 days in a row. And so uh, I think Peloton and and other health and fitness apps have that. And you can kind of see why that's that's, uh, desirable from a business point of view, because if you have a user who wants to maintain their streak because they just want to see that achievement or there's some sort of bonus, 
then they're going to use your app more than they would have otherwise, right? So that maybe at day eight, they would have stopped using it, but they're like, no, I want to get that streak. Um, I, I don't like them, <laughs> especially in health and fitness apps, because I think they promote unhealthy behavior. Anyone who has done a lot of training or a little bit of fitness training or running knows that you really should not be running every single day. It's a bad idea. Uh, you need rest days. So we decided just not to put that in because I, I thought it was a bad, it, it would it would be bad for our players. I think if we had it, we probably would have more, more users and we probably would have more money. Uh, I can't guarantee that, but I, I think so. But yeah, it just seemed like a bad idea. In a number of places in the book, you write about the the need for a company to make enough money to survive and pay its employees fairly and so on. But your decisions to treat the players with respect constantly seems like you're essentially making a decision to make less money. You're you're consciously <laughs> making less money. And at one point in the book, late in the book, you you suggest that doing gamification right to really craft the game for its context and its players rather than using off-the-shelf you know, leaderboards and streak counters and things, really crafting it for the game to be a really good experience for the players, it doesn't scale. I think that good gamification, when it works really well, is very specific to a particular context. What will work really well for running is not going to work as well for walking. It's not going to work as well for swimming, obviously, you know, for cycling, you know, for all these different things. And so I think that my critique of a lot of gamification is it's just really lazy. <laughs> um, people want to think that they can use this one weird trick to make whatever it is they're doing, whether it's trying to sell more widgets or, you know, run a fast food restaurant or whatever, more profitable, I mean, usually. Um, by just flipping a gamification switch effectively. And uh, that that's not going to work because, you know, every every situation is different. I mean, that's not the only reason why it's not going to work, but it's a big reason. You write about companies that are making grandiose claims for the effects of their gamified mm -hmm. technologies. You write, gamified apps routinely overclaim their benefits some otherwise well-behaved apps inadvertently lead their users to damaging behavior, and many contribute to an unhealthy culture of constant self-monitoring and competition. So whether it's intentional or not, a lot of these apps are really having harmful effects, and some of them even claim to be doing good in the world, having much better effects than they really are. My favorite example here was within the class of so-called brain games, these mobile apps that claim, oh, if you, if you work the puzzles in this game, we will increase your memory by a certain percentage and will decrease the, the risk of, of things like Alzheimer's, all kinds of, of medical claims. And you write a little case study about a company called Lumosity. <laughs> which I, I don't think I had seen this full case study in one place before. Just an amazing story. Can you just give a summary of what happened with Lumosity and its brain games? Yeah, so Lumosity was, um, and now I think I'm getting this right, it was founded by uh, some some people who had some training in neuroscience, and they wanted to uh, create an app that would use effectively mini games and puzzles you know like uh arithmetic mini games or verbal reasoning and non-verbal reasoning the sort of things you see in iq tests and uh they said uh, they made an app and they said if you go and play these games yeah you'll increase your intelligence and you'll you know maybe stave off neurodegenerative diseases like alzheimer's and <laughs> you know uh they got they got fined by the, I think the Federal Trade Commission, $50 million because they couldn't back up the claim that, that it would actually uh, work against Alzheimer's, but they didn't have enough money, so they just paid $2 million. And the company still operates. It's still, I think, it seems pretty successful to me. Um, obviously, they pulled back their claims, but 
I think that people download the app because they think, wow, I'm going to get smarter by by uh, using these apps. It's really frustrating to me because I, you know, I do have a background in neuroscience and experimental psychology. And it just, I don't know that I've seen many examples at all or any examples of any real simple activity that can increase your quote unquote intelligence. I think the only thing that I've seen that can maybe improve your short term memory is something like the end back test, you know, where so so if you really want to be really good at memorizing phone numbers, that that seems like a great idea to do. I don't think that's what most people have in mind. Um, and it's really boring as well. There is no way to make that more interesting. So it's, it's just a really interesting example of something that does not appear to work very well at all and, and is being oversold. But of course, lots of things are oversold. It's not unusual to gamification. But it is interesting that people just really want to believe that games can make them smarter. You know, the popular idea of how video games are understood in culture is that, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, they were demonized by the media and by the press and, and by just just everyone as, you know, causing violence and, you know, turning you to Satan and that sort of thing. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, playing Doom, Grand Theft Auto, that sort of thing. And so you have a generation of people who, you know, are understandably a bit annoyed at, at having been told that their hobby as teenagers was destructive and bad. And now I, I kind of feel that the pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction as far as it can go to the point where I think you're more likely to find a study saying that video games are good for you, you know, good for well-being, good for intelligence, good for everything, as opposed to the opposite. And I'm not, like, I make video games, <laughs> you know, I, I play video games, I like them. Uh, I always have to sound so defensive here at the same time. I'm like, I just don't really think they're necessarily that good for you. Uh, I think they're just, they're, they're fine. They're like books, they're, they're good, you know. Oh, uh, well, Adrian, I would say that reading books is better for you in the long run than playing <laughs> video games. Zombies run excluded, probably. of course. <laughs> probably. I mean, it, I mean, the, the difficulty with video games is that there are so many different kinds of video games, right? I, I think that everyone would agree that playing something like Candy Crush is very different from playing uh, chess, you know, or playing you know, a, a great video game like Into the Breach or, you know, Return of the Oberdin. And so part of this problem with gamification and with discussion of video games is it, it's a bit like talking about painting by talking about the visual arts. Are the visual arts good? I mean, I don't know. Like, it's a ridiculous question, but that's kind of where we are in this discussion. Can I just give a list of the games that I appreciated seeing in this book. I mean, you listed a lot of games and I haven't played all of them that you listed, but here's some of the ones that you listed and you were just clicking off some of my favorites. Hades. Love Hades. What a fun game. Spelunky. Masterpiece. Dark Souls. I was just playing it this week. Another great game. Zelda Breath of the Wild. A lot of fun. Minecraft, which is great. Into the Breach, which you said... Uh, you liked, and that needs to be much better known, that game. Mm. And uh, Rocket League, Cars Playing Soccer. Um, <laughs> fun. And I go down that list, and I'm, I'm looking at them now. Hades, fun. Spelunky, fun. Dark Souls, fun. Fun, 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 fun. I'm not playing any of these games to increase my <laughs> memory or, you know, knowledge of physics or history or something. I'll read books for those genuinely helpful outcomes, but games have a role at like like any entertainment that people enjoy. I think the problem is when the and I this is what I'm also getting from from your book you've been played. The problem is when moneyed forces like these giant corporations or workplaces use the tactics of games to capture people's uh, attention and then begin to influence their behavior in ways that they didn't give consent for and they don't even have knowledge of. That to me is unethical and it's, a, it's really a perversion of what games are supposed to be, in my opinion, which is fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if there's one thing that we 
can, that most people agree on about games is that they're, they're meant to be, you know, fun or at least engaging. And also, you're meant to play them by choice, right? That, that you're meant to like really, you, you can't, you shouldn't be forced into playing a game. It's really interesting this sort of issue of the techniques that companies use from games to to manipulate people's behavior. Uh, I, I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I say that, but of course, oh, you're you, you know, you're have... perfectly at home on tectonic, Adrian. There's, <laughs> and it's not a well, conspiracy; I... <laughs> it's well documented in your book. They're right, trying to so... influence behavior, and, and I think the hard thing here is that it's not like there is some secret trick in game design where if you go and use this incantation or use this particular ratio of reward and punishment that is going to immediately enchant or addict people to a game right i had someone on twitter sort of uh admonish me saying well a game can't be addictive that's you know everyone just chooses whether they play a game or not and i'm like i just i you know like i it is entirely possible for some things to work on some people at some times at different strengths. And that's, you know, uh, there are some games which I know personally I cannot play anymore because if I start playing them, I will not stop playing them for about 12 hours. So civilization, <laughs> I know how, you know, I know how civilization works. You know, like I, I'm very familiar with, with the game design of civilization and I could play, start a game, I can think, well, I'm just going to play this for two hours, then I'm going to stop. And I'm like, no, but I need to find out what, what's behind this, you know, ship. I need to, like, finish off this world wonder. I need to finish off my army. It It's ridiculous to say that, that the game isn't doing something interesting here. And it's partly because the game is good, right? It's engaging. Like, I'm, I'm into the game. But it's also because there is something, it's speaking to something in my psychology and other people's psychology where, like, I'm very interested in discovering new new places right i'm very interested in collecting things in seeing the progress bar fill up in, in you know seeing the number go up right and now other people ha are, react in different ways right um and other people you know maybe they wouldn't like civilization but they'd like a different kind of game and so you see to sort of loop it back to non-video games right it is very easy for for other companies to use those kinds of techniques to say oh um you should keep on using starbucks uh app because you want to go and get to you know this particular level uh or you should go and uh keep using duolingo because you want to keep your status at this level right and so that that is gamification right and it's not again it's not a magic trick but it's just something that usually these companies have arrived at through copying other companies. That's just, you know, or by trial and error, right? It's not through studying neuroscience papers or psychology papers. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Adrian Hahn, who's the author of a new book that I enjoyed quite a bit called You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. And you've heard in that first half of the interview some of the ways in which these corporations and other groups are trying to, as Adrian puts it, influence our behavior as I would say, trying to manipulate us. And it's well documented in his book, and there are many, many examples of who's doing it and where. This stuff is popping up everywhere. If you'd like to join the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and join on in. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Adrian Hahn here on Tectonic on WFMU. Let's talk about some of these examples outside of games where gamification is popping up. You mentioned the Starbucks loyalty card. You write a bit about uh, airline miles that work somewhat under mm -hmm. the same system. Then you write about the use of social media and especially Twitter as a gamified platform. You write, if you're adept at posting content that gets a reaction, you can command the attention of millions and 
that ends up system-wide on Twitter having the effect that, as you put it, authentic communication is no longer possible. So here we see one of the systemic impacts of gamification, this relentless drive to increase engagement on the part of these, these giant tech companies has drained out the authenticity in our civil discourse because too many people are just trying to post in order to get a reaction and many of those are using that attention then to make money. You wrote about with, with the GameStop stock mm. being <laughs> taken to the moon, as they put it, because <laughs> uh, a little uh, group of people on a subreddit decided to start posting about it. What do you think is the next step for us when we're seeing gamification take over and poison our civil discourse at the same time. What are we supposed to do about it? I mean, it's very difficult for individuals to do anything about it because, you know, I, I can stop using Twitter and, and, you know, I can stop, you know, reading Reddit and that's not really going to change a, a huge amount at the margin. It might make things better for me, possibly, uh, but then again, all my friends are on, on, you know, a lot of my friends are on social media. And so it's, it's tough to extricate you, yourself from that. It's difficult because one answer is, well, it's capitalism, you know, and what can you do? Capitalism is going to use the tools available in order to, to maintain growth and uh, gamification is one of those tools. I think that what I'm trying to do is encourage people to be a little bit more skeptical when they see gamified mechanics in systems or in apps. And I find that very difficult to resist myself. You know, when I, I use Twitter, and so when I use Twitter, I'm like, oh, it's great. People engage on this tweet a lot. And so I feel good. At the same time, I think it's really important to think, well, look, it is measuring engagement in a very specific and limited way, which is people who just saw it right now. And um, no one really knows whether anyone's going to remember this tweet in 100 days or, or, or 10 years. But it, it's difficult to opt out of that because, you know, when I wrote this book, you know, I, I was, it took, I took like a year and a half to write the book. And then it took another year and a half for the book to, to get published and be put into people's hands. And so that's about three years where I'm writing something that no one's going to see. And it's just, it, it's incredibly painful <laughs> as someone writing about technology who's, and, and someone who's on social media to not get feedback gamified social media provides you that feedback so much faster and it's not bad you know like there's nothing wrong with posting like a, a joke on twitter and people saying that's a funny joke right it's just that that's kind of what it's good for it's good for breaking news it's not really good for you know for a lot of other stuff yeah you write in the final chapter that there's a number of things that we can take collective action on as citizens as voters to try to create some systemic change because, as you say, there is little chance of one person at a time turning off their Twitter account that's going to have much effect, although I can attest to it being an improvement. I haven't logged into my <laughs> Twitter account in several months, and I can read better and think better, and it's there's the, it's it's net positive. So I'd encourage you to try it, Adrian, if you I, haven't. I, sh I should. I should. But let's talk about some of your solutions. You write a lot about how games should be designed and how gamification should be used or not in other contexts. And I really liked the overall conclusion that you gave. You said that gamification needs to consider what's best for users. Hmm. And you, even with the knowledge that there may need to be a business model behind that and there may be profit that has to flow, the initial filter has to be, is this good for users? You write, it means designing gamification with a different end in mind other than maximizing profit. You continue, I try to avoid making players do things that they'll regret, even if the regret only arrives months or years later. That's a really wise and mature way to think about design. How can we benefit the users in the long run not the short run that will make them, you know, have engagement or some burst of mm. dopamine or whatever, but will they look back in years to come and say, I'm glad I used that app? I think you're, you're really swimming against 
the current on this, Adrian, because <laughs> so many companies out there, especially in the games industry, as far as I could tell, the larger companies are trying to squeeze every little bit of profit out of uh, manipulating these users to do things that they may not have chosen to do. When I talk to people, especially people in the games industry about this, I always try and say to them, look, none of us got into making video games for the money, right? <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's not why we're here. Uh, if we just wanted to make as much money as possible, then we would work in the finance industry or consulting, right? Or, or something else. You, but when you are in the games industry long enough, it suddenly becomes a question of, well, let's just try and make as much money as possible. And so, you know, I think you can get good results by appealing to people individually and saying, look, you know, you, you want to make something, you, you want to be a creator, a game designer or a programmer, because you want to do something that feels a bit different, that feel, feels like it has something of yourself in it, right? If you're just going to make a game that is the same as everyone else's, except it just makes a bit more money, then it's just pointless. Like you, you should not be doing this job. And I think, and I think you understand that. And for games and for a lot of other things, gamification has become the way to make more money. As a game designer, I'm in a position of power and I have greater knowledge over what uh, I think or I know people are going to do as a result of playing my game. If I'm the, the designer of Farmville, then I, I kind of know actually like where people are going to be six months or 12 months or, or two years after playing the game, or at least some people will be. And it, it's not really enough to go and throw up your hand to say, well, we have no idea uh, whether people are going to regret playing this game in two years time. I think you do have an idea actually, but you just don't want, you just want to pretend that you don't because you want that money. You write in the book about the similarities between slot machines and the design of many of the mobile games these days. Well, mobile games and console games, not just mobile. One of the examples you give is this, this thing called loot boxes, which is in some of the big, you talk about EA, Electronic Arts games, where yeah. you're playing the game and then you open a loot box that could be anything, could be a rare find if you open up enough of them and then eventually they ask you to pay in order to get access to more loot boxes. So it's very much of a slot machine mechanic. You pay, there's a randomization and you're hoping to get something rare that comes out of it. That's troubling to me that games that were supposed to be fun and <laughs> literally fun and games for the players are now beginning to learn ex explicit lessons from casinos and slot machine designers? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I think EA makes billions now from from dupe boxes or from what it calls Ultimate Team, which is it's kind of like collecting, card collecting game. And a lot of free-to-play games are now powered by dupe boxes. It's just really sad. And, and it's kind of weird because... If you talk to a lot of people who play video games, they will say they hate loot boxes. <laughs> so, so you're kind of left wondering, like, is there anyone who will defend loot boxes? I don't really understand like how this is still here. Of course, people in the games industry will defend loot boxes by saying, well, most people play responsibly. You know, it's it, you know, it's a usual. Most people gamble responsibly. You know, and, and so on. Loot boxes are obviously tricky because these games are are played by a lot of kids, but. Even if there were no kids who are playing it, it would still be a problem. You know, you can still exploit adults. On a different topic, you mentioned Duolingo, this language learning app. I know some yeah. people who are very into Duolingo. They're learning uh, a language and they're excited about it and they seem to be making progress. But I, I can tell that with the, the streaks and other sorts of visual feedback in the app, this app is heavily gamified. What's your opinion of Duolingo? You know, so in the book, I'm I'm kind of uh, somewhat positive about it uh, because I'm like, well, at least no one's, <laughs> at least no one is fooled into to playing Duolingo. At least it's not that bad. To be honest, if I was writing the book now, I, I probably would would uh, not be so positive because 
they've made some changes and and the people i've talked to who use it tell me that uh, it's just not at all a good way for really learning a language like if you actually want to learn how to speak another language you should not use duolingo you should you should you know go and you know take actual classes or you should try and talk to people or, or so on because it, it provides the illusion of learning and it's very convenient and and it has a lot of feedback but actually uh it, it does not provide it, it's probably better than doing absolutely nothing but it's probably inferior to doing anything that's slightly harder so Ooh, that'd be a great tagline probably better than doing absolutely nothing duolingo well, that's a problem with a lot of the, these gamified apps where they compare their effectiveness to doing absolutely nothing, right? So if you go and say, well, my app is better than doing absolutely nothing, it's like, well, it, it probably is, right? But is it better than, you know, will Duolingo ever get you to a point where you could have conversational, you know, uh, speech with, with someone else? Probably not. It, it's not that kind of thing. When you actually look at some of the gamification it uses in that lens, it's actually you're just trying to uh, manipulate people to keep using the app as much as possible. And maybe they will learn some more vocabulary, but actually they're just using the app more. And that does not actually correlate with becoming good at the language. One thing they actually changed uh, very recently this year is that it used to be that you could go and choose between multiple paths of learning language. And uh, I think a few months ago, they collapsed it into one path. So you can only, if you want to learn French, you have to take these lessons in a very specific order, only in their order. And people compared that UI change to Candy Crush. They said, actually, Duolingo looks like Candy Crush now, and I hate it. And they're like, no, it's good, because now it's it's easier to optimize. So that, that's another one that I, I sort of feel a bit embarrassed about. <laughs> um, I don't praise it a lot, but I, I do praise it a bit. In, in the book and and uh it has it has betrayed my trust <laughs> here's one more i want to ask you about there's a mobile game called clash royale which mm. is very popular in fact it seems like what fortnite was a few years ago it seems like clash royale has supplanted it this is a game where i haven't played it but i understand you have to assemble an army and then you go head to head against some other player and it seems like it has a lot of the compulsion loop addictive elements that hooked so many young players on Fortnite a few years ago before it lost popularity do you know anything about clash royale that we should take note of well you know i haven't played clash i, I try not to play these games because i i kind of know what will happen <laughs> if i do but you know they're they're in this sort of genre of casual, you know, incredibly highly monetized casual games where their loops and the gameplay is so kind of exquisitely designed to keep people playing as much as possible and to, to pay. It, it's like a science, honestly. I know people who work in these businesses. It's so well planned that you can kind of run it off a spreadsheet. What I mean by that is... If I pitched you a new video game and I said it's going to be this beautiful artistic game about loss and grief and whatever, it, it'd be very difficult to know how much money we're actually going to make from that. It, it's pretty risky, you know, like any new movie or book or TV show. It's kind of difficult to know. Whereas with these games, you know, I've talked to these investors and I say, okay, just send me a spreadsheet and then we can we can know like how much money this is going to make because that it just sort of operates by saying, okay, so when you have a user for the first time, if you have a good design, you can convert X percent of them into playing for seven days, and 50% of those people will will um, buy a pass or buy you know a bag of gems, and we're going to end. I mean, what is what is most insidious right about these games is that they will engineer the experience so that you are guaranteed to have a certain balance of outcomes in the game so you might be like okay i'm going to have a battle against this other person who may or may not be a real person it's probably like a bot when you start out and that's how how fortnite works so you know because you don't want to play against a real player because they'll probably destroy you if you're a new player and so it will work so they're like of course the first time you play you're going to win and the second time you play you're going to win the third time you, you play you're going to win and the fourth time you're going to just about lose only just and you're like well if only I had this better sword, right, 
then I could have won that. And it'll be like, well, um, how about, you know, like you can play for two more hours to get the sword or you could pay $1. And you're like, well, $1, it, also it's on sale because it's normally $10, right? They're just so unbelievably polished. It is like being in a casino. And so it's not as bad as being a casino because you probably can't lose like a million dollars. But you can lose a thousand dollars, right? You know, you can lose a lot of time. And so, you know, I just find it, yeah, I just find it awful. <laughs> you know, I, I just think it's really bad. And, you know, when I talk to these game designers, they're like, well, Adrian, you know, we have, we get emails all the time from people who really love it. I'm like, yeah, I just, <laughs> you know, but like, or they'll say that the, the people who are spending a lot of money on these games, they're millionaires. And I'm just like, you don't, you can't possibly know that they're all millionaires. Like, I'm sure a lot of them are, but you can't possibly know that. You can't possibly know that, you know, the people are playing this in a way that they will regret. You know, well, you can know that, that people will regret it because you can read the reviews, right? It, I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing. And they'd say, well, because most people like it, it's fine. Or other people will do it. And again, I just return to the fact that, like, you know, I just look at these people and, like, I don't know, why did you even get into video games in the first place? It doesn't make any sense. You should just be making a casino, really. Uh, it, 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 it's, this is not a game. But, you know, if, if you start saying those things too loudly, then, then you don't get invited to parties anymore, so... Well, that was my next question, Adrian. I mean, how are you doing? Because <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that it took some real fortitude for you to spend a year and a half to write this book and another year and a half waiting for it to come out. Are you getting quiet emails in the middle of the night where people say, don't tell anyone, but I really believe in what you're doing. Keep it up. <laughs> or, or no. I mean, how? what's the reaction been? You know, the games community is a very vast community. And so, like I say, a lot of people in the games, most people in the games community hate loot boxes, right? And and a lot of people do not like the techniques that, that these games are using. Anyone who's played games for long enough will, will dislike some of these techniques. And I do get people saying nice things about, about the book, about what I'm saying. I think it's it's difficult because a lot of people don't read books anymore. <laughs> um, and so trying to convince people to read it is, is a tricky, tricky battle. Like, I like reading books, you know, it, it, it's like one of my hobbies, but I think that I spend more time reading Twitter and blog posts and newsletters, right? And, and so that's what I'm finding a little bit tricky is that I, I think that the subject deserves a book-length treatment because it's quite complicated and nuanced. And it's better if you kind of understand the background. And people, yeah, people in the games industry have generally been quite quite complimentary about it. But it is difficult because it implicates a lot of people in the games industry, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, I've seen people, I've criticized, you know, people at Ubisoft, at EA, and about, you know, pretty much every publisher. And no one wants to think that they're working for like a bad company. At the same time, I, I kind of kind of am calling them out. And so, but I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm heartened by the fact that the, the workers there are kind of like, well, I, I kind of see that this is a problem, but it's, it's a difficult one because just from a sort of like authorial point of view and a business point of view, it's like, you kind of need to get people to read the book. A lot of people underestimate gamification or they kind of think that it's just so obvious that it's not worth reading a book about. I've, I've seen a weird mixed reaction from the media and from the press. And so there's been some really great reviews and there's some people, I, and I know that there's some some media where they're just like, gamification, why why bother even writing a book about that? Like, it's just obvious stuff. So I find that pretty frustrating. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I can tell people, even if you don't read books, <laughs> if you play games or if you are subjected to gamification in your workplace or in your life, and this is just about everybody, you should read this book. This takes you behind the scenes and into the details of how these games are increasingly being made like casinos in order to uh, manipulate people. And that goes for the 
workplace gamification software that's popping up everywhere as well. Really recommend this to Tectonic listeners. The book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All, written by my guest today, Adrian Hahn. Adrian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the remaining, what do we got, 11 minutes in the show. And I want you to stay tuned after those 11 minutes, because Dave Mandel is here. That's right, he's back! Last week, his show, It's Complicated, was guest-hosted. By Scott Williams, and now, in 11 minutes, is the glorious return of Dave Mandel himself to host his show, It's Complicated, and I am happy to be free to tell you that his show is about Prague. (laughs) It's about Prague, and uh, if you don't know what Prague is, then you need to listen to It's Complicated. Coming up at the top of the hour... Uh, until then, I have a few more things to say. First of all, I want to say thanks to Adrian Hahn for being back on the show. <clears throat> As you heard me describe his book, You've Been Played, I think you could tell I liked it a lot. And uh, if you're interested at all in this phenomenon of video games, this, this perversion of video game mechanics popping up everywhere, as he says, uh, by corporations, governments, and schools in order to control us all. If you're concerned with that, you're affected by that, you're interested in that, uh, go get yourself uh, a copy of You've Been Played by Adrian Hahn. There is a copy of it on the playlist at WFMU.org. Click Playlists and Comments. If you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the October 24, 2022 show, and click the Playlist link, and you can find links to Adrian's book and his company and all sorts of goodness on that page, as well as the comments from the good listeners of Tectonic this evening who have been having a good conversation. I appreciate it. <coughs> I contributed a couple of things just to, just to um, add my two cents. So it, it's, been a, it's been a fun show and a, and a fun conversation. Now, I want to remind you, and this is going to tie back into the book, Uh, you've been played. I want to remind you that October is the month of our annual fundraiser, what we call the Hellraiser fundraiser here at WFMU. It's not as big as our spring marathon. We don't have phones. I'm not reading off names of of donors, but I can see the names and the comments of donors who have already donated and indicated Tectonic as a show to get credit, and I want to thank all of you for doing that. I also want to thank Everyone who's a Swag for Life member, that's someone who's um, got a credit card on file and we're charging 10 bucks or more uh, per month uh, for them to get the little uh, you know, gamification element, a badge, a, a, um, a jam box, a uh, radio icon on their playlist uh, name. So everyone who's doing that, thank you so much, <coughs> whether you've given as Swag for Life or if you've just given a one-off for the October fundraiser, or a bunch of people have done both. And what I want to say is um, we're at October 24, and, it, we're, you know, we're, the, the end of October is in sight, and um, the, the fundraiser could be doing a little bit better. And, and I understand why it's a little challenging because of uh, macroeconomic forces that, you know, a lot of people are under pressure right now. I totally get that, and if you can't donate... I totally get it, and I just appreciate you listening. I just want to say thank you just for listening. Um, But for those of you who have not donated and have some extra cash, uh, now would be a really good time to show support for WFMU. And it's really not that hard. If you go to WFMU.org, find the little pledge widget that's talking about the, um, the fundraiser, click it, and just put in 
10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. Or if you put in 50 bucks as a one-off donation, you get one of the two t-shirts that we have on offer. They're both really cool. Uh, I, I chipped in a hundred bucks just so I could get the two t-shirts, uh, both of them that are just for the October fundraiser. The thing about <coughs> gamification that I want to bring up is that on the homepage, there is a little animation that shows a progress meter <laughs> and uh, we're at 60% now stationwide and uh, it's, a, it's a brain with electrodes and as the progress meter fills up, this is very much a gamification element, uh, the animation I believe changes and I think there's a payoff if we get to 100%. And, um, and this is an example of good gamification. Let me read you something from Adrian's book. <coughs> Excuse me. Gamification can be a useful tool. This is Adrian Hahn writing this. Gamification can be useful if you enter into it willingly, if it's designed with your interests in mind, if its mode of monetization is transparent, i.e. it's not selling your location to advertisers without your knowledge or consent, if it doesn't exaggerate its benefit, and if you find it engaging and fun. So let, let's just let's lift up this litmus test against the WFMU October fundraiser. Um, if you enter into it willing, willingly, yes, no one is forcing you to pay. So everyone who, who gives is doing it willingly. If it's designed with your interests in mind, heck yes. Everything on, on this radio station is cutting out all the junk that other stations have. There's no underwriter breaks. We're not talking about... Amazon, listen, listen to this show on Amazon. There's a certain station in, in I'll just say, in the, in the city known as NYC that every five minutes is telling you to listen to a show on Amazon. Use your Amazon surveillance device. They don't call it that. They're not accurate. It's so annoying. Yes, we have your interests in mind. We're trying to put together a barn raising here. We're trying to put together the greatest radio station in the world, but we need your support to do that. If its mode of monetization is transparent, yes. You know what your money is used for? Bandwidth, electricity, paper towels, <laughs> um, you know, the water that, that DJs need to, uh, to, to, to sip from during, during their uh, shows. That, that's where the money goes. Um, it, it doesn't go to me. I'm a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. The, the, the on-air talent here is, is uh, volunteers. If it doesn't exaggerate its benefits, okay, maybe, maybe we've exaggerated a little bit um, <laughs> here and there about WFMU, but I don't think so. And finally, if you find it engaging and fun, and I think that's the most important point. If you find this show engaging and fun, oh, let me revise that. If you find it engaging, <laughs> engaging and depressing, <laughs> then you should give if you, if you have some extra cash lying around. Go to WFMU.org and just chip in a few dollars and just your show of support means a lot because it shows us there are people out there who still believe in this station. And, and for listeners of Tectonic, it shows me there are people who believe in the message I'm trying to get out about trying to build a better society that is not based on predatory, late capitalist, monstrous, lethal, evil corporations and their government partners increasingly who are using things like gamification to manipulate and influence and control and in some ways enslave us all. And this show stands against that. And I want your $10. I want you to stay tuned after Dave Mandel for the State of the Station, hosted by Station Manager Ken Friedman, starting at 8 p.m. And uh, all of this, by the way, is on the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what I want you to do. I want you to avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, whatever you do, friends, get off Google.
And good evening. My name is Dave, and I'm back after, <laughs> dragged back on the air after an extended semi-vacation, and it's very nice to be back, semi-retirement, I should say, and it's great to be back here at FMU. Uh, this is my new show. I'm going to be on the air here every Tuesday night, or every Monday night <laughs> for at, at 7 p.m., 7 to 8. I'm, I'm tremendously nervous. Bear with me. Um, this is my new show. It's called It's Complicated, and the show will be dedicated to Prague and Prague-adjacent music, 7 to 8, every Monday, 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 Monday. And uh, I don't want to start with the long, uh, like, uh, didactic lecture. Some of you may not know what I mean by Prague, and good for you, but I will say very quickly, very briefly, that uh, progressive rock was a style of music started, I guess, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. That was uh, sort of a breakaway from rock and roll. And I guess people thought that it was they were moving on, moving on up to bigger and better things. And people started playing music with um, more complicated structures, strange instruments, much longer highfalutin lyrics, this kind of thing, and they called it progressive rock. And progressive rock covered lots and lots of ground. Later on in the in the early 70s, progressive rock, or uh, later prog rock, uh, became, became associated with a particular very narrow kind of music, the, the heavy sort of classical-influenced, uh, extremely complicated music played by people like Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, yes, Genesis, King Crimson, and uh, that's what became known as prog rock or progressive rock. Prog, the term prog was coined actually much later, probably in the 80s or something, to refer back to to that music. And prog generally refers to something even narrower narrower than progressive rock. Uh, prog refers to the really hardcore, like peak progressive rock of of bands like um, bands like you know, Gentle Giant, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and Yes, and so on. So that's it. Very, very briefly, I will um, as as the show goes by, as the weeks go by, I'll talk a little bit about the music. Not too much. I don't want to bore you, but I'm going to try to mix it up. Hence the the second uh, second part of the show description uh not just prog rock but uh prog adjacent as i as i called it which gives me sort of a legal loophole if i run out of bona fide prog rock or progressive rock to play i'm going to play music that was kind of influenced inspired descended from progressive rock and prog rock so we'll see where it goes i'll play old music new music i don't know what i'm going to play we'll see not much planning because that's not the way I like to do it so it's going to be more or less random but I'm going to jump in now I'm going to start just purely purely uh, coincidentally I'm going to play some early pro or, or proto prog rock to start and play a couple of tracks from the early 70s that you know, you may or may not it may or may not be called progressive rock. Who cares? This is all, all kinds of debates that that we're not interested in because we're too busy to worry about that kind of thing. But uh, some early or proto prog rock. We're going to hear a song, uh, a song from Focus, the Dutch, the Dutch group, who were more kind of jazz rock than anything else, I would say. And we're going to hear, following that, a track from the group Dust, who were based in Brooklyn, New York. And both of these tracks, these are both, as I said, very early and, and uh, like 1970, 71. And uh, by amazing coincidence, both of these pieces are in 5-4 are in time, 5 quarters time. And I mention that because one of the, one of the attributes, one of the things you're going to be hearing a lot of, and I'll try to be gentle, is, is music in, in strange time signatures. That's, that's a very, very 
prominent feature of prog rock, progressive rock is, is you know, don't play, <laughs> don't play in 4-4 four, four time if you can help it at all. So we're going to hear two tracks again, one from Focus, one from Dust. These are both in 5-4, and then uh, we'll see where we go from there. Okay. Sugar Island Cuba You lay there just for fun With all your colors and your pants A treasure in the sun Da ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da 